Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. David Wheaton is the host of the Christian Worldview. It's a program I don't miss. It's awesome. You can learn more about David at thechristianworldview.org. David, welcome back. Bill, so good to talk to you and be with you again on the program. No kidding. So we're going to dive right into um, how important it is to embrace a Christian worldview. Um, so let's, uh, let's get started. Yeah, I mean, we 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 talked about this, and we're going to do a twelve-part series this year. So nice. I'm very much looking forward to it. It's a really important topic. So thank you for for inviting me. Yeah. So maybe we should just start with you know what is a what is a worldview and who has one. Yeah, that that sounds like a good place to start. Well, the. <laughs> right. the, the 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 cheating answer is a worldview is your view of the world right just flip the flip the word <laughs> but uh, there's there's more to it than that um, I, I would define it this way and I, I wrote this one down a worldview is one's perspective on all matters of life okay one's perspective on all matters of life based on a collection of beliefs and convictions that drives the way you think and live. So again, what, what's that mean? That means that everyone has a worldview. That's one perspective in all matters of life. And everyone's worldview has a basis or a foundation to it. It's not just by accident. You think and you live the way you do. Mm-hmm. And number three, your worldview drives your life. And so those are really important to understand. So one's perspective in all matters of life based on a collection of beliefs and convictions. You've collected these beliefs and convictions that shapes your worldview along the way. We'll get into that. And this drives, this worldview drives the way you think and the way you you live life. And so there's other words for worldview that are, I think, corollary to it, Bill. You could say it's your viewpoint or your opinion or your your political views or your doctrine or your theology in life. All these words have the idea of, you know, what's your perspective on on various things. Now, interestingly, Bill, the Bible doesn't actually use the term worldview, but really the entire Bible is meant to shape your worldview you know, about who God is. It shapes the way you think about and understand who God is or who we are as his is His creatures, his created, what God expects of us and how we can be right with God, how we can please God. The Bible, there's that thread going through all of scripture, this big narrative about those kinds of questions. And so I, I wouldn't say the Bible is a worldview book. It's a book about God and how he's redeeming uh, sinners to himself and what his plans are for the future. But the, all of scripture, if you accurately interpret it, is going to shape your worldview. God wants us to think and live a certain way. And 2 Timothy 2.15, I think, is an important verse where Paul writes to his understudy, Timothy, a younger pastor, so to speak, at the time. And he says to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And here's an important phrase, accurately handling the word of truth. 
And so as we do this series, that, that's the goal, to embrace a Christian worldview means to accurately handle the basis or the foundation of a Christian worldview, which is the Bible. So in the second part of that question you asked was, uh, what is a worldview? Okay, we've talked about that, but who has one? Well, everyone has one. We, we all have perspectives on every area of life. I mean, just think of a, a big hot topic of the day, a cultural question of the day. Can, can someone change their gender? You have one person who says, no way, you cannot change your gender. Another side says, of course, you can choose to be whatever you want to be. Matter of fact, there's 56 genders. Another person's in the middle and says, well, this isn't even an important question for me to answer. So there's, all those are different worldviews. They're taking the different positions they think about and live out different ways on a given topic. So really, Bill, life is just a clash of worldviews. Mm-hmm. And those in power or influence believe their worldview is the right way or the best way, and they try to persuade or impose others to believe or live like they do. And so worldview drives the world. So David, if we drill this thing down, it really starts by what you believe, because your beliefs are going to determine your values. So what you believe is really important. Yeah. And, 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 and the subset of that is not only what you believe, but what that belief is, what your beliefs are based on, and whether that basis, that foundation is actually true and comports with reality. Yeah. So your beliefs are going to end up determining your values, and then your your values will basically inform your worldview. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So what, what you believe and the foundation on what you believe is really important. David Wheaton is my guest. I'm so glad to have him back after a short break. We're talking about uh, embracing a Christian worldview. So let's go back to what is shaping one's worldview. I kind of let in with what we believe is important and having a foundation that's uh, scriptural is critical um, and rightly dividing the word of truth. Now that's going to be a controversial topic because you have two theologians in a room or three and you might have three different takes on the same verse. That's right. So what shapes your worldview is I think there's really two things that two main things at least, the the influences you have had throughout your life and the experiences you've had in your life. Mm -hmm. So from an influence standpoint, a huge influence, of course, is the family you grew up in, your your parents, you know, how you were raised, uh, teachers you had in school, coaches you had in the sports field, maybe a mentor you have in life or friends is, is a huge point of influence in someone's life. Those you listen to, those who lead you, uh, so does what you read shape your worldview. The books you read, the magazines, the articles, where you read online, what you watch on television, the movies, television, documentaries, whatever, what you listen to, all these things are influences in your life. We're really just a product. Our, our life and our way we think is a, we're just a product of our influences, really. And so all those things I mentioned there shape your worldview. But even beyond that, also, your life experiences shape your worldview. Where you grew up, you, you, the, the the triumphs you've had in life or the trials in life shape your, your worldview. So you take these two things, your influences and your experiences, and, and this will explain, Bill, why two people can look at the exact same subject with the same ev- evidence and can come to t- two totally different conclusions. And I gave the one on gender, but here's another one. You know, How does... One person you're sitting next to on an airplane believe that an all-knowing, all-powerful God created and sustains the universe, while the person next to that person believes that there is no God and that life arose from nothing. Mm -hmm. It all boils down to 
their worldview. You take the issue of abortion. Why is it that one group of people view killing a pre-born or partially born baby as morally reprehensible, even murder? Well, another person looks at the same set of facts and views it as a, a woman's right to health care. Mm-hmm. You see, worldview, the influences in your life, the experiences in your life, and then as we talked about already, what those are based on, especially the influences, what those influences are based on determine how you're going to view any given if- issue. Yeah, David, this is a big topic. I'm looking forward to unfolding this over the months to come. But uh, shaping your worldview and, and processing your life experiences and coming into contact with the Word of God, uh, it, it's all uh, an interesting combination, isn't it? It, it, it very much is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, we, we are products of our worldview and what that worldview is based on. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about why this worldview is just so important. I know we're going to be talking about this uh, in the months to come as well, but uh, let's just let's just dig in right now before the break. Yeah, well, the simple answer to that is your worldview drives your decisions, and really life is just a series of decisions, right? Every day is just one choice after the, the next, whether it's a, a almost like an involuntary, uh, unconscious choice we make or the, the really big decisions in life. I mean, if you think about your, your your life is just made up of one decision or one choice after another. I mean, Bill, you've already made dozens of decisions today. Maybe you didn't even think about it. You decided to get out of bed this morning. That was a decision. You could have stayed in bed today. Bill, but you Mm -hmm. didn't. Why didn't you? Because something in your worldview told you that there was something worthwhile for you to participate in today. Mm -hmm. And you made made a decision to get out of bed. You made a decision what to wear, whether to make your bed, what what you ate today, how fast you drove to work, how you treated your colleagues at work, what you decide to cover on the program today. So all these things are driven by what you're thinking and what what motivates you to, to think and live a certain way. But your worldview goes beyond that, why it's important. It goes beyond some of these more seemingly small subconscious decisions that we make all the time. Your worldview also provides answers to life's biggest, most important questions. You know, questions like, how did the world come to be? Or the question of origins. What is the purpose of my life and how should I live? That, that has to do with meaning, the meaning of life and morality. Or who is God and how can I be reconciled with him? That's the most key question of salvation. Or what happens after I die? That is the question of eternity. And really every worldview attempts to answer these big questions. And and it's common that one worldview will will view a a given issue, as we've discussed, in complete contradiction to another worldview. Mm -hmm. But your worldview is taking you somewhere, whether you realize it or not. David Noble of Summit Ministries used to like to say, ideas have consequences, or worldview has consequences for better or for worse. So if your worldview aligns with truth and reality, which are one and the same, truth is reality, you will have wisdom and stability to thrive in life and to endure. Even if the world seems crazy around you, you're going to be grounded in a truthful worldview. But if your worldview believes and follows what is not truth, it's based on things that are not real, you're going to experience emptiness, anxiety, anger, hopelessness, and all manner of negative consequences. You know, Paul wrote in, in 2 Corinthians, he said, We walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our war are not of the flesh, 
but they're powerful, divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And here's the key part. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that is the point of a Christian worldview. There's so many lies. The lie came in the garden right away. Has God indeed said, Satan said to Eve. And that's been the story of the, of the humanity since then. There's all sorts of lies originating from Satan and fallen people. And the Christian worldview is meant to understand God's truth as written in his word. So we can take every, cap th- every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Oh, fantastic. I have missed you, David Wheaton. All right, let me take a little break. We'll be right back with more. You can learn more about David at thechristianworldview.org. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer requests with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. We're going to continue our series on embracing a Christian worldview. David Wheaton is my guest. We'll be right back. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. Welcome to your afternoon. I'm glad you're spending it with me, or a portion of it. Always great to be with you. David Wheaton is my guest. He's back after a brief period of time where he was away and we missed him. We're talking about embracing a Christian worldview. He's the uh, host of The Christian Worldview. You can learn more about David at thechristianworldview.org, and I encourage you to do it. His broadcasts and his podcasts are all available, and he is an excellent host and interviewer, and I'm always glad to have him on. So, David, let's get back to, uh, you know, maybe we can discuss what are the, the main worldviews. Yeah, I mean, there there are many worldviews in the world because there's a lot of kind of cross-pollination, so to speak. You know, people don't have purely worldviews sometimes. They, they get a little – it's like going to a buffet table. You take a little bit of this, you take a little bit of that, and then you form it all together, and that's your worldview on things. So there are many in the world, but there's only about a half a dozen, I'd say, that in, that influence or shape a majority of the global population. So there are – religious-based worldviews like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Christianity, um, these all these worldviews believe that there's a, a natural world and a supernatural world. Okay, that's important to, to, to know for the religious where there's a, there's, a, there's a spiritual world in addition to a natural world with some kind of God or power beyond man. But there are also non-religious worldviews, and we sense these a lot in America, like, like atheism naturalism or even like the the political worldview of communism, Mm -hmm. which believe that only the natural world is real. There is no supernatural. There's no God. There's no supernatural. There's no life after death. There's just man and what we can see, hear, feel, taste, and touch. So to, to keep it simple, I think a helpful way to categorize worldviews is to divide them into two groups, but not really religious versus non-religious. I think it's more helpful to def- divide a worldview or divide the worldviews 
into what a given worldview is based on. We've already talked about how important the basis of your worldview is, but is it based on the word of man or is it based on the word of God? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now all secular and non-religious worldviews are, of course, based on the word of man because they don't believe in anything beyond man, right? So they're all based on the word of man. But even amongst religious worldviews, with the exception of biblical Christianity, all of them are based on, or in, in part at least, on the word of man as well. All these religions I mentioned, whether it's Islam and Muhammad or, or Buddha and so forth, or New Age religions, and subsequent followers, their, their followers, which are humans, developed their religion. So while they may have ideas about God or spirituality, they were really developed and shaped by men or, or women. Mm-hmm. But, but the Christian worldview is unique amongst all worldviews because it never asserts that it's based on anything to do with man it's based solely on the the word of god you know second peter chapter 1 in verse 20 says know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture so no part of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no scripture or prophecy was ever made by an act of human will it didn't come from the mind of man but men were moved by the holy spirit spoke from god so the, the bible asserts all over the place that this is not the words of man. These are the, this is the inspired, the inerrant, the sufficient, the authoritative word of God. In other words, men may have physically written down the words of scripture, but it was God who inspired or directed them what to write. That's why the Bible is called the what? It's called the word of God, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the, not, not the word of man and God, it's the <laughs> word of God. Yeah. And so I think a helpful way to remember this bill is you have the worldview of Christianity that's based on Christ, the Word of God, Christianity, right? Based on Christ, whereas humanism is based on humans, based on the Word of man. So that's a good way to kind of remember the division between all the worldviews. There's really all the worldviews out there, whether religious or secular or non-religious, and then there's biblical Christianity, which is different because it's based on the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And biblical Christianity will be uh, highly scrutinized if we were to suggest that another worldview is full of errors. Very much. Yeah. yeah that, that's that's the clash of worldviews that, yep. that we live in. You know, people think their worldview is the correct one, and that's where we feel the tension in society and around the world. I mean, wars are are fought over worldviews. The different perspectives, and sometimes they go to battle over it. Mm-hmm. Now, David, I, I love the Christian worldview, and I also want to say when we talk about worldviews, would we also be wanting to make sure we have the word biblical in there? Um, yeah. Only because I, I sometimes think, unfortunately, you have people <clears throat> going around claiming to be Christians who aren't. Mm. That is a very, I'm so glad you asked that question, because oftentimes the term Christian worldview or biblical worldview are used sort of interchangeably, mm-hmm. but there can be a difference. So this isn't a riddle, but the biblical worldview is a Christian worldview, but a Christian worldview is not necessarily a biblical worldview. What does that mean? Well, the biblical worldview is like it sounds, is based on the Bible, okay? Right. While a Christian worldview can be interpreted or understood as being drawn from a wide variety of, let's say, Christian denominations, traditions, and doctrinal interpretations. You talked about the three theologians in the room. They all may come from completely different perspectives. Right. But 
in reality, God, as the author of the Bible, doesn't have many doctrinal interpretations. He has one intended interpretation of any given passage, or say, let's say the Bible, yet there are many applications, but God inspired men with one intended interpretation, and, and it's our objective to understand what God actually means in his word. So I would say a Christian worldview I, I don't see you can define it a little differently. I wouldn't say a Christian worldview is not the worldview of Christianity very broadly, because we all know Christianity is a very, very broad tent professing Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's not a denomination. Let's let's call the Christian let's call the Christian worldview the worldview of Christ. I'm, I like that. Because if we get to his worldview, then we will have the truth and we can find out his worldview by accurately handling the word of truth. And and just one more point, Bill. The point of the Christian worldview is not just to think a certain way. Often people think of a worldview as just an intellectual pursuit. You know, you know, we, we, we can, it's possible to know about God and yet not know God personally. Mm-hmm. The, what Paul said in Philippians one, he said, um, he said, I count all things to be lost in view of the super, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Uh, then he goes on to say, I, I want to be, I, I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, so that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, nor that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So the Christian worldview or biblical worldview for Paul was not about knowing facts about the Bible or even about Jesus. It was about knowing Christ personally. It was about believing in him as Savior and Lord, understanding that God had created us, each of us, to be in relationship with him. But we have sinned. We deserve God's judgment. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then obeying Christ's command to repent and believe in the gospel, and when we come to that decision of salvation, to believe in Christ as Savior and Lord, God gives us the Holy Spirit inside of us, which gives us the illumination, the awareness, and and the the ability to actually understand Scripture and then to know a Christian worldview and to apply it. Yeah, fantastic. You know, David, this is a great start. I'm looking forward to continuing uh, this series, and I appreciate uh, us just getting um, getting going and and defining some of these terms. And I think as we continue this, we're going to learn and and fully understand. God calls us to do and to be in the world. Um, so this is going to be a great study. I'm very much looking forward to it. You know, uh, and just doing these interviews with you, Bill, is really is really encouraging and 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 pushing, so to speak, for me to sure. really think through some of these things as well. So I thank you for the opportunity. Have a great uh, rest of your day, David, and blessings to your family and your parents. And sa- same to you, Bill. Thanks so much. Hey, I don't know if you've downloaded the Faith Radio app. Go to your app store and check it out. I have to say, it's a it's a beautiful app. I've got mine on my iPhone. And uh, when you download it, you just can't believe how pretty it is. And you open it up, and it's uh, very easy to navigate your way through it. And you can listen to Faith Radio Live, or you can just uh, check out the podcast. It doesn't matter where you go. You can download if you've got that Faith Radio app. So give it a try. And if you don't like it, you know, it's easy just to delete it off your phone, but I'm pretty sure you'll keep it. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. If you have ever wanted to understand other religions and compare them with Christianity, you have come to the right show today. I've got uh, Dr. Douglas uh, Grotheis. He has written a brand new book called World Religions in Seven Sentences. We're going to get this down to basics, and I'm looking forward to it. I always like talking to Doug. Doug, nice to have you on. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Very interesting uh, book, very interesting concept. You've taken, what, seven different world religions and, and reduced them to one sentence. Right. Actually, I deal with six world religions. The first sentence I use is by the atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, and that's his very famous statement, God is dead. Okay. So he did not promote a religion. He was actually against all religions. But what I wanted to do is use him as a way of considering a case for atheism, and then, of course, I critique his, his view that there is no God and therefore life has no meaning. So I start out with a sentence from a secular thinker, and then I go on and use different sentences from um, Judaism and Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity, and Islam. And maybe I should defend this kind of idiosyncratic method. I wrote a book back in 2016. I wonder if we might have done an interview on that called Philosophy in Seven Sentences. Yes, we did. And yeah, and the idea was that you could take representative ideas from the philosophers and then use that as an entry point into their overall philosophy and then give a critique of their philosophy. So InterVarsity liked that idea. They've actually come out with a few other books with that seven-sentence theme, including the Old Testament in seven sentences, and a few other ones. And I decided to do this book called World Religion in Seven Sentences. So I'm not trying to reduce a religion to one statement. It's really more like an entry point, or you might say a lens through which to look at the religion. Yeah, Doug, I think it makes it very accessible for someone who wonders what Hinduism is and what Hinduism mm-hmm. uh, stands for and what uh, Islam means and what, what, is, what is Islam in one sentence? And you would say, yeah, there is one God and Muhammad is the prophet. Right, and that was a pretty easy pick yeah. because that's the confession of Islam. That's what people say when they want to identify as a Muslim, someone who submits to Allah. The other ones might be a little tougher because there's so much to draw from. But I I hope I was fair in doing this. And so I don't just jam on the one sentence, obviously. I look at it in terms of the religious beliefs as a whole, and I do some philosophical analysis, and then I uh, compare these religions to Christianity. So I think the book is fair to the other religions, but ultimately it's it's an apologetic for Christianity. Yeah, of course. And I, and I think your short descriptions just make things accessible. Like, for example, Buddhism, you say life is suffering. And I, th- I think to myself, yeah, I think I've heard that about Buddhism. That's how they that's look at right. it. That's right. Yes, that's what's called the first noble truth of yeah. the four noble truths of Buddhism. And you might say, say, well, that's kind of a non-starter. How are you going to recruit to your religion? And you say <laughs> something like that, right? Exactly. It, it's not like, uh, you know, the old, Four spiritual laws, God 
loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But uh, Buddhism really is a religion of trying to escape suffering. It's not really a religion of abundant life or human thriving or anything like that. It's, it's a very grim assessment of, you know, what Ecclesiastes might call life under the sun, except for Buddhism, there's no God above the sun. Yeah. So life is full of unfulfilled desires, and then we have desires, uh, we, unfulfilled desires, and then we have things we don't desire. And the answer for the Buddhist ultimately is to escape the craving, escape attachment, and eventually attain the state which is called nirvana. Mm-hmm. So the first truth is life is suffering. Suffering is caused by craving or desire. And the way to end suffering is to end craving or desire. And then there's a something called the Eightfold Path through which you do that. So that is extremely different than Christianity. Of course, we realize the world is full of suffering. The world is groaning in travail, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. But that's because it's fallen. The world was originally very good, Genesis tells us. God pronounced the blessing of very good on the world after he created humans. But what is very good has gone very wrong because of the fall into sin. But on a Christian view, the world is redeemable. Uh, There is a God who created and designed the world and is interested in human beings to the point of taking on human nature in Jesus Christ. But there's really nothing like that in Buddhism. So I was trying to explain uh, the inner logics, so to speak, of Buddhism. Um, If there is no God and you're trying to deal with all the disappointments and struggles and suffering of life, uh, the Buddhist message, I suppose, makes some sense. But there is, in fact, a God, and he is revealed in in nature and in scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's important to realize that while Jesus and Buddha are often compared, and some people say they teach basically the same thing, just in different words, or they came at different times to different cultures, their teaching are are really extremely different. Uh, And the, the sentence I use for Christianity, there could have been a lot of them, is where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, that's Mm -hmm. in John chapter 8. And Jesus is identifying with the living God revealed to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. So right at the heart of uh, Christianity, of course, is a a living, personal, moral God who speaks, who communicates. And Jesus claimed to be that God in the flesh. And John teaches that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. So according to Christianity, Jesus is the revelation of a a living, personal, moral God, and he communicates truth through his words and through his actions. And if you compare that to Buddhism, the Buddha, and Buddha is a title, it means the enlightened one, the Buddha is someone who supposedly received enlightenment and then taught the Dharma to the world, but it has nothing to do with a creator. It has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins. And uh, the Buddha supposedly peacefully died at age 80 and and was buried. Mm -hmm. And of course, 
The Christian account, really well-rooted in history, is that Jesus died, in fact, very young. He was crucified. He was killed for us to atone for our sin. He was buried, and the tomb was empty, and he later appeared over a 40-day period as alive. Mm -hmm. And uh, Thomas, when he finally saw Jesus face-to-face, had this great confession, my Lord and my God. So I think it behooves us as thinking people to understand what the various religions teach and then make a wise judgment. It's really too easy. It's just not even intellectually responsible to say that all the religions somehow teach the same thing or they're all different ways to the same destination. They're really not. They're very different. That's what I was trying trying to communicate in this book. Yeah. Dr. Doug Grothuis is my guest. And his book is called World Religions in Seven Sentences. And Doug, Taoism uh, is something I know almost next to nothing about. Would you say a little bit about that? Yes. Taoism doesn't have a huge following globally, but it is a religious tradition that has quite a bit of intellectual and spiritual influence. It's traced back to a shadowy figure by the name of Lao Tzu in China, who supposedly wrote a book called the Tao Te Ching. And the Tao Te Ching is full of uh, aphorisms and epigrams and various stories. It doesn't read anything like, uh, let's say, one of the Gospels. But the sentence that I chose uh, is very significant. It says that the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. And that word Tao, which is spelled either T- A-O or D-A-O means the way or the path. And it says the way that can be is not the eternal Tao. So this is a basically a non-cognitive mystical tradition. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense of God revealing truth to humanity. There's no sense of God sending prophets into the world to speak the word of truth that convicts and charges the world to repent. And so as a philosopher, I spend a lot of time on that concept. What does it even mean to say the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao? What do we have left to talk about? (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't be any more confused by that whole idea. Yeah, Yeah, right. But the reason I use that sentence is not because Taoism is a very populous religion, or because it's a missionary religion, it's not, actually. But this idea that the ultimate reality, the mystical center of existence, is somehow beyond words, and we have to kind of feel around or experience it somehow, I think is really a non-starter. It doesn't tell us anything, really, Mm -hmm. about the ultimate reality or how we should relate ourselves to the ultimate reality. So... I deal with some of the texts in the Tao Te Ching. I try to make some sense out of them and okay. say, ultimately, we just don't have a true word about reality in Taoism. We might have some wisdom here and there about um, going the way of water. Mm. The Taoism is sometimes called the water course way. So there's a wisdom to water. It just seeks out the, yeah. the lowest place, but it can have power and all that. But it's nothing to base your life on. Yeah. I Like you said earlier, Doug, I want to talk to the recruiters, the people that recruit for yeah. these religions, because this That's is right. so not nonsensical. But what what would draw me to any of these? What would draw you to, to Buddhism, where you sign up with life is suffering? Okay, I get that, but yeah. 
the the richness of having a personal relationship with the living God. None of these right. are there. Not at all. No. Not at all. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that um, the Christian message makes sense. It is more appealing. It's also backed up by logic and history and so on. And these other religions uh, have a fair amount of truth in them, especially Judaism, of course, yeah, of course, because it's fulfilled in the New Covenant of Jesus Christ. But ultimately, these other religions uh, miss the mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you look at some of these world religions, and your inclination is to say, well, what do you believe, or what does a Hindu believe? And they believe a lot of things. Um, right. None of which is, seems to be connected in the least bit to any amount of truth. Yeah, and there are so many different reasons people hold religions. Uh, some of it may just be more a matter of, matter of family history or nation of origin. Yeah, right. Something yes. like that. Or they yeah. say, well, I'm from India and I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Muslim, so I'm a Hindu. Sure. Uh, what kind of Hindu? You know, I find it fascinating that we have a presidential candidate, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who identifies as a Hindu. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, and he says, though, that um, God is real. That's the first point of his political platform, is God is real. Yeah. And I've heard him say in a video, he said, as a Hindu, I believe all people are made in the image and likeness of God. Hmm. Whoa, wait a minute. You know, you didn't find that in any Hindu no. scripture. <laughs> that's, no. that's in this book called the Bible. So, And the fact uh, that he's in politics, he is going to learn a lot about suffering. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Doug, let me take a little break. A break. Okay. Dr. Doug Grote Heiss is my guest. His book is World Religions in Seven Sentences. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. My guest is Dr. Douglas Grotheis, and he's written a book called World Religions in Seven Sentences. He writes from, of course, a Christian perspective, and he spells out really the tenets of six world religions, because he includes atheism in there as well, which we don't count that a world religion, but as we look at Islam, Doug, I would love for you to talk about some of the comparisons between Islam and Christianity. Yes, the statement I chose from Islam is the confession of faith, which is, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. It's very succinct and to the point, and that's how one becomes a Muslim, is simply to affirm that. So there is a interesting relationship among the religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They are all monotheistic religions. They all believe that God revealed himself to Abraham, so they have been called sometimes Abrahamic religions. But uh, with Islam, you have really a hard break. You have a discontinuity with Judaism and Christianity, although Islam claims to be the final revelation of God, and it claims that Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, that is, there are no more prophets, and Muhammad is the last and greatest prophet. So everything you find in the Quran is the final word about God, salvation, and ethics. But the problem here is that the Quran contradicts the Bible at many points. And 
fundamentally, we want to go to the person and work and achievements of Jesus, because the Quran has some very flattering things to say about Jesus. It says he was sinless, that he worked miracles. It even says he was the Messiah. However, it denies that he died on the cross. And, of course, it denies, therefore, that he is the atoning sacrifice for sin. And it denies the Trinity. It says, say not three, Allah has no son, and so on. So looking at this logically, you have to say, well, we have the New Testament documents about Jesus, and they were all written uh, just a few decades after the life of Jesus. And they say that he died, that he rose from the dead. And we've got strong arguments to that effect that I've made in other books. And then over 500 years later, a man goes into a cave and meditates and believes that an angel sent from Allah has told him these new revelations about God and Christ and salvation. And included in these revelations is that Jesus was not God. Jesus did not die to atone for our sins. And I have to say, the burden of proof, to put it mildly, is on anybody that would deny what the New Testament says about Jesus. Yeah, it's true. And I, you know, I don't see Muhammad having the credentials uh, to make that kind of a claim. I mean, he himself worked no miracles. He didn't fulfill any prophecy. And I don't find anything in the Quran to make it intellectually, morally, or spiritually superior uh, to the Bible, or especially what the New Testament says about Jesus. No. You know, that may seem rude to be so straightforward, but I do give the arguments. And the best way to approach a controversy in religion or otherwise is to give arguments back and forth. I mean, rational perspectives back and forth and see which is the best one, you know, which makes the most sense. I did an interview with um, a journalist a few months ago and, um, she said, you know, in this book, you say we should be civil and we should be kind and we need to res respect religious freedom. And then when you get to Islam, you say that Muhammad was an illiterate false prophet. How does this work? <laughs> I said, well, Muslims themselves claim that he was illiterate. So receiving the Quran was a miracle because he could not have written it. He didn't know how to write. Mm -hmm. And I said, I give the arguments. And so I give an argument that if the New Testament is true, and Jesus is Lord, uh, then Muhammad is a false prophet. And that doesn't mean that Christians persecute Muslims, or we persecute anyone we disagree with, but it might just be that the best arguments and the facts are behind the Christian message and not behind uh, Islam. Doug, what's the attraction right now to Islam? And the, really, there's, there's so many people embracing it. Well, you know, it depends on the person. If you grow up in a Muslim country, you don't have much of a choice. That's true, yeah. You know, if you grow up in Iraq or Iran or Pakistan, uh, there's not much religious freedom there. Yeah. And it is expected that you'll be a Muslim. And also, there are very severe penalties for deconverting. Now, in the U.S., where we have more religious freedom, it's a different story. Islam sometimes is accepted as a religion of discipline and simplicity. And so 
the idea is that American culture is debauched and depraved. They're right about that. So we need a religion that's going to be very clear in its moral teachings, and which is straightforward. You don't have to believe in things like the Trinity or the Incarnation, which can confuse people. And some, even Americans, are attracted to that, just on that basis. Uh, I don't think it's, it's an adequate uh, apologetic for Islam by any means, but that's part of it. Sometimes Muslims will say, you Christians have these doctrines that make no sense, like the Trinity and the Incarnation. We say there's one God, and Muhammad is the final prophet, Jesus was a prophet, and this is how we live our lives. We have the, the basic practices and the basic beliefs of Islam, and this is the way we should live. Mm. But as I said, I don't find any reason to believe that Muhammad was a prophet superior to Jesus, or that what he said should be believed over what the Bible teaches. So, however appealing on some levels Islam may be, I don't find it really rooted in truth. And Doug, when uh, Islam, they have no personal connection to God, no no relationship to speak of. That's just no. so odd. No, there isn't. Now, they believe that Allah is a personal being. That is, he has a mind, he has a will, and he reveals himself. But in terms of having, uh, let's say, a friendship with God, or having a relationship like a father and son relationship that we know of in Scripture, there's nothing like that. In fact, Islam denies that we're even made in God's image, because that would be to put humans too close to God. That's called the sin of shirk. So Islam doesn't really teach that you can have a restored relationship with God. It teaches you should fear Allah and obey the Sharia law and hope that you obey it adequately to merit paradise. Mm -hmm. So there's no mediator in Islam. You know, 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we have an advocate. We have a go-between. And thank God we do, because if we didn't, you know, we'd be on our own with the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to go very well at the Last Judgment. Mm -hmm. We have a mediator who atoned for our sins and ever lives to make intercession for us. What a glorious truth. And we have such good reasons to believe this based on the historical testimony of the New Testament and based on the experience of Christians down through the ages. But if we have to depend on our works for salvation, then we're, we're in very bad shape. Because through the works of the law shall no one be justified, Paul tells us. And... Doug, talk a little bit about uh, Jesus and the intellect. Yeah, I've done a lot of thinking about that over the years. Jesus said we should love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Mm -hmm. And when you look at Jesus interacting with the religious leaders of his day, you see he's very sharp. He knows the Old Testament. He knows how to reason with people. And if you look at Jesus as a model, you would never say that Religious faith is some kind of blind leap into nothing, uh, because Jesus really was a model of uh, a sterling intellect. Now, he was more than a thinker, more than a philosopher. He was you know, prophet, priest, and king. He was God incarnate. 
But if you look at something like Matthew 22, when he deals with uh, questions of how the Jews should relate to Caesar, and uh, a question of the afterlife, and a question of who is the son of David, he's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Because people tried to stump him with these really tough questions, uh, and he could not be stumped. You know, he could not be refuted. And uh, the Christian intellect, the Christian tradition at its best, really reveres uh, the intellect. We need to, as Paul says, be transformed through the renewing of our minds. Uh, we see that in Romans 12, too. And then also, Peter says we should have a, a reason for the hope that is within us, that we offer those when they ask us about our faith, mm-hmm. and that we should present this with gentleness and respect. I have an article online uh, called Jesus as Apologist and Philosopher that was originally in the Christian Research Journal, so if people would like to know more about that, they could read that. Nice. Doug, I'm very glad I've got a signed copy of your book, uh, World Religions. You didn't sign it. I put my name in it. Um, oh, very good. <laughs> I probably send you a couldn't sticker you. you can put it in there. Yeah, yeah, maybe I can get a sticker someday. But thank you so much yeah. for taking time to do this today. It's a really a fascinating book, and it's mm-hmm. um, you've done a really beautiful job of making it accessible and, and making a, a very delightful read. I, did, I haven't gotten through all of it, but I'm going to finish it. All right, well, the quiz is next week. I'm a professor. So I know you are. Ready. It makes me very nervous. All right. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. All right, thanks so much. Okay, yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Doug Grotheis has been my guest. His book is called... World Religions in Seven Sentences, a Small Introduction to a Vast Topic. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back with Hour 2 in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.